Hello, welcome to another episode of the Good Listening To Show. A couple of announcements before we get on the open road of today's episode. There's a brand new website for the show at www.thegoodlisteningtoshow.com. If you'd like to be my guest too and join the Genius Club by being my guest, you can do that through the various series strands on the website, again at www.thegoodlisteningtoshow.com. If you've written a good book and would like to reach a large global audience covering 54 countries here on UK Health Radio and telling them exactly where to go and buy your book then good books is a series strand for you you also get to put your book on a metaphorical plinth within the clearing to tell us the story behind the story of your book and read an extract from it also if you're a founder or you run a business then uh, brand strand founder stories is definitely the series strand for you where you can be really clear about what you do how you do it and also where exactly we can go and find out much more about you on the internet too uh, there's also one while i'm there called Legacy Life Reflections, where you can gift the construct of the podcast with me interviewing somebody near, dear or close to you in order to record their story for posterity. So yes, lots to look at on the new website, www.thegoodlisteningtoshow.com. Don't forget you can follow me on Twitter as well at, at that Chris Grimes. Enjoy today's show. Welcome to another episode of The Good Listening To Show, your life and times with me, Chris Grimes, the storytelling show that features The Clearing, where all good questions come to get asked and all good stories come to be told, and where all my guests have two things in common. They're all creative individuals and all with an interesting story to tell. There are some lovely storytelling metaphors, a clearing, a tree, a juicy storytelling exercise called 54321, some alchemy, some gold, a cheeky bit of Shakespeare and a cake. So it's all to play for. So yes, welcome to the Good Listening To Show, your life and times with me, Chris Grimes. Are you sitting comfortably? Then we shall begin. Marvellous and a seamless segue into welcoming the wonderful Kathy Rensenbrink into the Good Listening To Show clearing. Kathy is an acclaimed memoirist and author whose um, books actually don't shy away from the really epic themes which we will be talking about. Uh, but you describe of yourself, I am a writer who loves to encourage. You'll be able to tell us all about exactly how you go about encouraging others uh, as we go through. But uh, welcome to the show, Kathy Rensenbrink. It's very nice to be here. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me into the clearing. You're very welcome. And you were um, past the golden baton uh, by the lovely Kate Dimbleby, who you were recently at the Bath Festival, Literature Festival, co-hosting an event with, I understand. Yes, we do a bit of uh, singing and writing and it's all linked, isn't it? Voice. Uh, so I love doing anything with Kate. Lovely. So she's part of the Golden Baton. Thank you for saying yes. And uh, uh, well, how's morale? What's your story of the day, please? Well, it's been raining a lot where I live down in Cornwall, but I'm not being oppressed by it. And uh, yeah, I'm just cracking on doing my stuff. And um, what, are you, what are you in the midst of writing at the moment? I've just delivered a draft of my novel to my editor. So that is a very good feeling <laughs> and I'm really sure. the best bit probably of the whole process so that feels very good and now that I've delivered it to her I'm almost trying not to think about it I don't want it to develop more in my own head because I don't want yes. to kind of 
out. I don't want to become, I, I want to talk to her about it before I sort of almost have more thoughts, if that makes sense. So I'm trying to actively not think about the novel or the characters in the novel, which is quite hard because I've been obsessed yeah. with them and think about other things. And how long has this sort of giving birth metaphorically process been in, in delivering your book? Well, I've been working on this novel probably for just over two years, but I thought about it. I had the idea for it kind of halfway through writing my last novel. And, and actually the idea for it I had when I was about 20, the original idea for it. So that is, so yeah, so two years or three decades, somewhere between. Yes. <laughs> somewhere between those things and by the way you do like to encourage you were recently doing a guardian masterclass in happily researching you last september which is how to begin your story uh, overcome you know writer's block and start to get your your story out there so um it includes stuff like you know write it all down how to put your life on the page so you're, you're all about encouraging others but you also um often um you host lots of literary events as well and you interview lots of authors yeah, and generally it's sort of all about the reading and the writing, really. But I do particularly, I mean, I do genuinely think everyone should have a go at it, like if they like, if they want to. Um, yes. And not all writers do think that, actually. So that probably is, that probably is my, maybe my most unusual thing. It's the thing that really excites me. I can feel a bit, I, you know, I often feel a bit awkward or diffident talking about my own, like my novels, say. But if it's, if it's, if it's like I'm encouraging other people to do it, then I sort of, um, I feel very confident about that bit. Yes. I like the fact you're sitting there with a steadler pencil, not behind your ear, but it's, it's clutched gamefully. <laughs> you are a writer and you're all, you're all sent to take notes. That's lovely. Yeah, very rarely don't have a sort of a pen or a pencil in one hand and, and basically piles of books surrounding me or paper or whatever. <laughs> well, congratulations on the delivery. Was it just today you've gone da -da and, and done the big reveal and, and the delivery of the, of the edit? It was, it was a couple of days ago now. Yes. So, um, but when, and everyone said like, oh, what are you doing? How are you celebrating? I said, mainly lying on the sofa, staring at the wall. Um, <laughs> and dribbling. <laughs> and then uh, swimming, going swimming. Um, so, so yeah, it's a funny old thing writing books because on the one hand, when I'm writing a book, all I sort of really want is I want it to be finished. And then when I when yes. finish, and then I was supposed to be having a whole weekend off, which rarely happens. So I gave myself this whole weekend off. And of course, I spent most of it having ideas for new things and sort of secretly scribbling down other things. So uh, you can't help thinking. You've obviously got a very active brain, which is great. Yes. <laughs> and by the way, I can't talk to you without asking about your delightful surname, which is so unusual, Rensenbrink. Do you mind if I ask you about the derivation of Rensenbrink? Not at all. So I married a Dutchman and uh, changed my name to his. He did at the time say, are you sure about this? Because you'll get very bored having to spell it out for people. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, the, the problem is I'd married someone else before and changed my name. And I really don't think you should change your name because once you start changing it, it's difficult then to stop. It's difficult to get off the wheel of yes. changing the name. And, and I was what would you, did you have any baby, um, but the hospital, but my name, so I'd never bothered changing my name back after the first marriage. So the baby was being called in the hospital by the name of the first husband. That just felt a bit peculiar. So, oh. um, yeah, so and it was, I remember this, it was literally easier to marry someone else and change my name to his than it was to reverse out of the other 
name. I'm sure there's some point to be made about the patriarchy there. So I signed up to take on another <laughs> man's name. <laughs> but I always say if I'm going to have a third husband, I'm going to pick someone with something that's a bit easier to spell. Um, and I'm also going to, if I have a third husband, I'm going to choose someone who doesn't do that thing when they're driving, of getting annoyed with other drivers. Um, uh, that's but, what you want. That's an order. You're putting in an order for a quality you want your third husband to have. Is that right? Well, I like, but both my, I'm still very good friends with the first husband. So both my first husband and my current husband say, I will not find that quality in a straight man, they reckon. They think it doesn't exist. <laughs> they will see, won't we? <laughs> So to the song of My Old Man's a Dutchman, that's a, obviously a bastardization <laughs> of that. But did we go on an exotic journey of Jones Smith to Rensenbrink or something? What, what's been your surname trajectory? Not really. So my original surname, so my dad's Irish, but it's not, it's not an Irish name, really. My original surname was Minturn and um, apparently comes from Dorset. So someone from Dorset went to a court city, I think in about 1850, we reckon, and started having Minturns over there. Um, yeah, and then I married Mr. Waterhouse. That was quite a good name, easy to spell, but a little bit memorable. And then I married Mr. Rensenbrink, difficult to spell. It is phonetic, so once people have got the hang of it, you've got the hang of it. But I do get called some funny things. And as a question on everyone's lips, did you ever do an internship as Minton? Because you could have been Minton the intern. Turn. Oh, that's very good. No, I didn't. No. But um, I did. When I was having my first book published, I did think I might reverse out of this whole having someone else's name and go back to my original name. Um, but my agent didn't let me, basically, because she said people already knew me by that other name. So it's a bit like so Agatha Christie's when Agatha Christie's husband, Mr. Christie, left her for someone else. She was still stuck with his name. So it's a bit like that. I'm kind of, my agent said, doesn't matter whether you keep the husband or not, but you're stuck with the name. <laughs> you're sticking with it. So uh, a million points, no cash attached. What was Agatha Christie's maiden name that she could have gone back to? She was called Miller, which isn't a particularly good name, is it? But then she married again. She married uh, Mr. Malawan. So, but she was, and then she used to, she was called Mrs. Malawan in her private life, but she had to stay being Agatha Christie. I mean, Agatha Christie is a very good writerly name, so... Absolutely. As indeed is Kathy Rensenbrink, just to blow a bit of happy smoke at you. you. Certainly memorable. <laughs> so uh, it's my great delight and joy to curate you through this journey uh, where I'm going to invite you to a clearing, which we'll talk about in a moment. And that energetically is where it will all be set. And then I'm going to arrive with a tree, shake your tree, see which storytelling apples fall out. There'll be a couple of random squirrels, a cheeky bit of Shakespeare, and a cake and a golden baton and some Shakespeare. So it's all to play for. So um, should we just get you on the open road then? Um, is. Where is, what is a clearing for Cathy Rensenbrink? Where does she go to get clutter-free, inspirational and able to think? So I like to be, the most important things, I like to be by the sea. And then my clearing would be not a particularly beautiful sandy beach or anything, probably like a little bit rocky and seaweedy, um, a little sort of cove, that kind of vibe. Um, but yes, next to the sea, the sea can be kind of like crashing in a bit. Um, or it can be calm. The sea can be doing whatever it likes because the sea is not my bitch to control. So that's like... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> it's an expression we all like to use. The sea is not my bitch to control. I, I congratulate yeah. you for that. <laughs> so I am allowed to be by the sea. The sea does its thing and I'm allowed to humbly interact with it um, in my clearing. And just to riff on that, it's always us that are the sea's bitches, I think. You know, we must never take the sea for granted. It can, it, yeah. it can turn and yeah. ride upon us. So um, do you want to be on your own in this cove or, or do you tend to like to be there with other people nearby? 
I mean, I do very much like other people. In fact, the beach where I go act, act where I do actually go swimming every day, I go to the beach where there are more likely to be more people. Um, and in general, actually, one of the great difficulties of my life is that writing books takes quite a long time. And you need to spend quite a lot of time alone, and I don't like being alone at all. So, yes, yeah, so I would always go for the people please option. Lovely. And so, let's be specific then. Whereabouts? Where, where geographically is this beach? Uh, it's in Cornwall. Yeah. Um, and is it, I mean, this, I do kind of have a real one, but the, in my head, my clearing's a little bit more. Ah, uh, yes, a bit more esoteric, yes. Yeah, probably, and a little bit more, um, well, probably like a bit sort of smaller. Um, but yeah, there'd be things nearby. There'd be like things up on the cliff and I'd be able to, I would be able to see evidence of other people. And it is, it's, it's sea swimming then you like to do, and you do that on the daily, do you? Yeah, I do. I'm only only since last summer. Um, mm. so, uh, but at the moment, I swim. I'm swimming every day, sometimes twice. Wow! And it, do you find that's great sucker for your writing craft as well, in terms of clearing your head and the invigoration? Yeah, I find it's really good for everything. It's good for mental and physical health. It's good creatively. It's good for a sense of perspective. It's good to have a sense of routine i do have quite a lot of company with it because i kind of there are other people that i sort of will see on a regular basis so i like yeah. that feeling of that feels a bit sort of water coolery you know a little bit like having <laughs> uh colleagues in a nice way like people that i see i really like that seeing people on a sort of nearly daily basis and being a little bit interested in them but then we sort of we're sort of like ships that pass in the morning swim uh yeah. so i kind of all of that and i love um, the idea of the sea being a water it's a sort of epic epic water cooler <laughs> quite literally yeah, it is <laughs> so if i may now then i'm going to arrive with a tree a bit waiting for godot-esque a bit existentially um i'm going to shake your tree to see which storytelling apples fall out i've even got a comedy prop apple how'd you like these apples <laughs> and we don't chomp on this it's actually plastic or whatever it's made of um so this is where you've been kind enough to have prepared you've had five minutes to have thought about four things that have shaped you three things that inspire you, two things that never fail to grab your attention and borrow from the film up. That's, oh, that's where the squirrel's going to come in. And then a quirky or unusual fact about you that we couldn't possibly know about you until you tell us. So over to you to interpret the shaking of your foliage as you see fit. So four things that have shaped me. I think the first thing is that I was just born, just had the great good fortune to be born into a really beautiful family. And my parents are both as individuals they're just really nice people they're good kind but also interesting people and then they really love each other um and they um my dad is Irish and he had a difficult childhood he ran away to sea and then when he was 18 he sailed into Falmouth and he met my mother on Custom House Quay and it was love at first sight and that's now what 55 years ago um and so and they're still like that and I think just being and the older I get the more I see what a sort of extraordinary privilege it is just to have parents who who just kind of love you and want the best for you and I yeah it, I mean of course it, it would be wonderful if everybody had that wouldn't it it's quite a sort of a simple thing in lots of ways um but yeah I, I grow into it as a I think I grow into it as a piece of knowledge about how lucky I am just to have had that um and how you know my dad's really good fun he couldn't read and write either when I was born so all my first stories 
were actually they were told to me by him but they were told to me via um sort of irish rebel songs usually uh songs about you know hot british soldiers doing horrible things or men going up you know emigrating to work and being treated badly by women you know gambling losing your money gambling um, <laughs> you know having to earn your money doing difficult dirty dangerous jobs so all my first stories are those stories and again i guess i find that quite interesting it's quite a gift i think as a writer to have a big person in your life who is not themselves actually confident with writing and reading i think it's always given me a very different perspective but and then of course i had my highly literate mother who taught me to read from a really young age when she always said she didn't really even have to teach me to read she just sort of showed me books and i ate them up so but i think it's very i think it's been a very shape i think it's a very good piece of good fortune but also a very shaping thing of me as a person and probably as a writer to have had those two really nice people but also then be so different from each other so there's a lovely constancy which they invoked which you find inspirational in what they i suppose given and provided for you and um, i was really intrigued what was your mum doing on custom key that day was she just looking wistfully <laughs> out to sea for a future husband what how, how what was she doing that day yeah she was just out with her friend viv and uh she they were just um yeah, they were just sort of like hanging around town. And then she said she just, and she, I mean, she just like sort of like loved my dad from the first minute. Later on that day, they walked up, there's this road in Falmouth called Spurnham Wynn. And they walked up Spurnham Wynn and she said she just couldn't take her eyes off him to the extent that she just walked into a lamppost. She was so dazzled. <laughs> she was so dazzled by him. And he was so different from anyone she'd ever met before. Like all the, um, you know, he just seemed so different and so foreign you know, at the time, like the late 60s. He was just such a different thing. And yeah, just right from then, that was it. And I hope Viv got married eventually, or unless she spent her whole life being jealous. <laughs> another. So my dad was with a friend and my mum was with Viv and Viv and the friend hooked up for a bit. So there was, a, there was that, but then I, don't, I think that fizzled out. And, and if I may, I'm just being facetious. Your parents gave you constancy and then you're now on marriage number two, please. And you're, you're already preparing for one who mustn't have road rage. Well, this three, please. Thing. I'm not sure because I'm very lucky to have had them, but I'm actually not sure. It, they've sort of given me unrealistic expectations. I think. <laughs> yes. And I think my dad's really given me unrealistic expectations of what men are like um, because he's just so sort of nice and jolly <laughs> and always in a good mood. And uh, yeah, I'm sure there are some men like that. But, um, but yes, but between both of them, they've given me an unrealistic expectation of what marriage should be like and what married life is like. So, I mean, I've never met another couple like them. Um, yes. And so they, I mean, they had quite a lot of adversity in their early years and it was difficult for them to be together. And my mum says they've never, she's, she's never got over just the joy that she can just be with him. You know, that people aren't trying to split them up anymore, you know. Yes. And he, so I think it possibly came from that a bit. But yes, I've got unrealistic expectations <laughs> because of them. But I'm still pleased to have had them. It's not like I would trade them in for uh, a more ordinary, or more ordinary parents who are always falling out with each other. Yes, lovely. So that's that's the first bit of shapage. What else would you like to say about shaping? Oh well, then this it gets really sad because the. They were born into this beautiful family and they had me first um, and then they had my brother and then the the other really big shaping thing. And I can't, 
oh, I sort of wish it wasn't such a shaper, but it just is, is then my brother died. And that's the great sort of sadness, really, of life for me and my parents. Um, and look, I've started crying again. I've now, I mean, I've talked about this so much. I wrote, my, I wrote a book about it. My first book was about it. And every so often I think, like, surely I'll stop. You know, surely I've cried all the tears. Um, but I usually find there are still a few more left. So, yeah, so I never, I don't think I'm ever going to not feel really sad about that and that that happened. Um, and so, that was yeah. your first very cathartic book. Was that the last act of love? That's right, yeah. And feel better. And yeah, it's the second book. So, yes, very profound indeed. And, and um if, if I may, what's the, what happened? What was the story of that? Um, well, he was knocked over um, when he was 16. He was knocked over by a car. and um, But then he didn't die straight away, but he was uh, left in a very brain-damaged state and he died eight years later. Wow. And we had to go to court to say that we thought he should die, which, again, isn't... Uh, psychological experience I would wish on anyone so that then um I think it is different now because there's more of an awareness of the toll that can take on you as an individual but so but at the time we did it I think we were the 12th case to go through the family courts um and it's a very uh, it, uh, it's a whole big thing about um I sort of I do understand it more now which is just that we've the, the what happened to my brother like it just wouldn't like even 10 years before it, he was knocked over, it just, the technology didn't exist almost that would keep him alive. Um, so we're, we're kind of like more able now to keep people alive, but we haven't sort of caught up with that sort of morally, philosophically, ethically, psychologically. So that whole difficulty of being with um, a body really that doesn't exist anymore, but is still, so, uh, it's still sort of there. Um, so, yeah, so that was such a big thing. It was sort of eight years between the accident and his death. And then, um, and I do remember thinking, like, I, was, I thought when he dies, maybe I won't cry that much because maybe I've, maybe I've used, <laughs> maybe I've used it up. Maybe I haven't got any um, more tears left, but that turned out not to be true. And I always seem to have these extra, these extra sort of reservoirs of, um, extra sort of reservoirs of grief, really. Um, indeed, you know, when I first positioned you, I said you you definitely don't shy away from the epic themes in one of your other books, a manual for heartache, navigating sorrow, anguish, despair and loss and you know, living with the knowledge that the world can be a cruel place. So you, you are chronicling stuff that's really important and cathartic for people in that regard. I suppose that's what I mean, you do realise eventually that um, and I was always really allergic. I didn't like people telling me that like, oh, you're a stronger person because of it. I didn't like any of that. I still don't think it's a sensible thing to say to someone whose heart's being chewed out of them, that it's some kind of personal development opportunity. Um, <laughs> yes. but, but having said all that, there is a way eventually, ultimately, where you realise that you have learnt things you know that, that just the fact of still being the fact that of having survived and still being here does mean that you've learnt things along the way and that some of those things might be worth sharing and that that then and then it kind of gets into a virtuous circle I think so I think I think it makes me feel less alone to share things and then it makes other people feel less alone because I've shared it and then they yes. write telling me that and then I feel a bit better so it kind of you do sort of end up in a 
in a place like that, I think. Um, and I am, if I have a talent almost, I would say, is I'm really able to be present with human pain. Um, I don't walk away, I don't look away. I can really be with someone that's in incredible pain. Um, and that's just because I've had to sort of learn how to do that. Um, emotional pain, I mean, not physical pain. I'm not very good with physical pain. My son said recently, he said, mummy said, you're always very good at emotional pain. You're not very good at physical pain. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not at all. Um, so, but yes, I understand, I think, the depths of the human heart, I suppose, and the um, the anguish, the possible anguishes of it. And I am still here. And yeah, and I now think, now I do now think I know quite a lot about how you, how you do that, how you, how you can still be here despite the anguish. So a, a, a very profound shapage number two. So I think it's a couple more shapings and then we're into yeah. so One of the things, of course, that is how I'm still here is books and reading. And specifically I chose, I got a job in a bookshop. So again, life had gone really wrong. I'd been so derailed by everything that happened with my brother. And I, def I definitely think... Um, and how old were you, by the way, when your brother, this happened to your brother? Well, I was 16 when he was knocked over and 24 when he died. Uh, sorry, I was 17 when he was knocked over. He was 16 and I was 25 when he died. And then um, and then I definitely think, <laughs> like joking aside about ending my first marriage because of my first husband's way of driving, um, definitely marriage was a casualty of all of that as well. It just like, got caught swept up in my sort of inability to be a grown-up um and then I just didn't I just didn't know what to do really that had all ended and I couldn't really do anything and I didn't know how to do anything and um, then I got a job in a bookshop and that was a very shaping moment and truly I could say I would go as far as to say it saved my life and uh still my plan again if anything goes really wrong again my sort of scorched earth plan is I'll just go somewhere where I don't know anyone and get a job in a bookshop sort of anonymously um as in not you know not say anything about writing books or whatever and i'll well you've got a perfect it. website for that because even your website is kathyreadsbooks.com so yeah. hello <laughs> come in and let me read your books is, is the perfect job offer you're no, qualified in a bookshop like I still I worked in a bookshop called Hatchards, which is in central London and then um, there was a downstairs there was where the paperback fiction section was and um, it's sort of my happy place would be just answering queries about paperback fiction, recommending paperback fiction to customers. And in between the customers, I'd like put the Georgette Hayes in alphabetical order, you know, that kind of thing. A little yeah. bit of light shelving, a little bit of light shelving, a little bit of chatting to people about books. So, but yeah, so getting a job in a bookshop was a very shape, shaping thing and then led to all my other book related things ultimately. So, um, and did you know yeah. you were going to be so bookish or that was quite a surprise when it saved your life being in a bookshop well I mean I had always books were everything to me and reading was everything to me uh, but I was at quite a low ebb of confidence like I definitely thought at the time I didn't think I could do anything I mean I'd always wanted to write books but definitely that but I mean I didn't think I could be a writer or get a job in publishing or do anything really I knew how to be a barmaid and that was the only thing I really knew how to do so I didn't and then when it came to getting a job I just thought oh, I just don't want to you know, I was 29. I thought, oh, I don't want to have to put up with, you know, laughing at the jokes of drunk men. Um, and I thought, oh, maybe I maybe I should try getting a job in a bookshop. Um, 
And then, of course, it did lead to everything else. And now it seems really, I mean, like, why did I feel, why did I think all those other things weren't possible? I don't know. But bit by bit, they kind of became possible, I guess. Hmm. Number, shapeage number four, please. And by the way, I've got a bell that sort of drives along, which goes, cash in oh. number three, please. So I forgot to mention that. So now we're up to uh, shapeage number four. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, having a child, I just, I feel that it's such a, and I still don't remotely have my head around it at all. My son is 13. And I just still feel like it's this extraordinary experience, not anything like I would have thought it would be. And I don't know anything about it yet. Um, and yeah, maybe by the end of my life, I'll understand some of it. I don't know. But at the moment, I'm just still sort of like, whoosh, what a thing. I met someone the other day who's just had a baby. Well, I think the baby's about six months old. And she said, I just keep thinking like, Every day I think, my gosh, this is more than I thought I was getting into. Like, well, yeah, <laughs> every day as well. It doesn't sort of stop in so far in my experience. So, yeah, it's just such a big, peculiar. It's so uh, it's so banal, isn't it, in the sense that so many people do it. And, I mean, lots, loads of people have children. And certainly all of us have been a child. So it's like every single person that exists has been birthed, you know, out of a human, haven't they? Um, and yet it still feels such a profound mystery to me, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah, I haven't got my head around it at all. I mean, I wrote a whole novel about life with small children and I now think like, yeah, I mean, I didn't get, it didn't, I'm not sure it advanced my understanding really, but there we go. <laughs> We're all just winging it, we know that. And so that you can yeah. to wing it majestically, I'm sure. <laughs> Lovely. So uh, well done. That's the shaping. So now we're going on to three things that, uh, that inspire you, please. Yes. So in the pandemic, I really missed big art. And I've never thought of myself as being someone who's very interested in art. Uh, art at school was always a bit sort of humiliating. I was not very good at it, a bit clumsy, you know, would knock over my water thing, all that. It usually end badly. And I've never even thought of myself about, I never even really thought that I did like art. And only in the pandemic did I realise the extent to which um, in any kind of situation where you can, I'll always be trying to pop into an art gallery um, and just look at things that are really big, just look at big swathes of colour. I like, really like portraits. Um, and so, and it was one of the things I really looked forward to. And it's still one of the things I really like about going to London just going into the National Gallery or going into the National Portrait Gallery uh, and I find it quite overwhelming. Like I can't, I can't go to a museum for any kind of museum. I can't go there for any length of time. I sort of want to look at three things and then lie down on the floor for a day. Uh, <laughs> yes. But I do but to be able to go in the National Gallery again. And most of the time at the moment, I'm just kind of starting at the beginning and looking at the, the big art and so much of it was religious. Um, and, but again, all these, this blue, this sort of this idea. I read this brilliant novel years ago by James Runcy called *The Colour of Heaven*, and it was all about artists. It was all about people travelling to try and get the colour of blue, so they could paint the colour of heaven on the chapel walls. Wow. Um, and so that's it. So I just like standing in front of uh, not only religious paintings, but these religious paintings, just kind of staring at them and trying to work out. Well, not it. Well. I mean, I am trying to work it out. I'm trying to, I'm trying to calm my busy head a bit and just, I don't know, just sort of like look at them and kind of sort of lose myself in all that blue, probably. But it's very interesting because often the art was commissioned 
And often it is part of a piece of furniture, say, so it'll be an altarpiece or it will be, uh, was a thing I really liked. You know, so it's on. So there's sorry, there, you froze for a second there. It's really like what, sorry, you, you just snagged. Yeah, so there's a so there's a painting, but it's it's a funny shape because actually it's the it's the lid of a harpsichord, you know. Oh. So, and the paintings will be in funny shapes because they'll be from different things. There'll be this bit of side panelling for a wardrobe. I find yeah. that really interesting. The way that um, something about the way that the art was kind of almost it was like in service. It was to be making religious statements. I remember was... being similarly in awe when I saw the Book of Kells in Dublin, when mm -hmm. someone spent their entire lifetime calligraphying one page or something like that. Whereas now you can just, you know, Google a Pantone and then that's where you get your blue flom and that's what that's what you that's how you paint your heaven. So it's extraordinary when someone has to go on a sort of life quest to find and source. I remember also lapis lazuli as a sort of blue that was mm. obviously uh, that was more um, uh, Tutankhamun, I remember. Well, it's, a, it's very interesting. I, I could just sit around, I don't know, writing out lists of colours, you know, different shades of blue or just looking at shades of blue. So that's my current thing. I kind of almost quite like, well, I don't, sometimes I really want to learn about it, you know, so I'll be thinking like, oh, I really want to learn about all of this. And then other times I think, no, stop trying to educate yourself. You don't always have to know everything or have a theory about something or know what the theories are about things. Just maybe just stand here and look at the blue, you know. So that's yeah. kind of what I'm trying to do. Think a bit less sometimes. That sounds like there could almost be a squirrel. The colour blue goes, oh, squirrels, and you'll stop and stand in awe, ready to lie down. Yeah, yes. could have been. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> lovely. So another influencing uh, entity? Well, this is also a blue thing. So the sea, we, obviously, we've already talked a little bit about my swimming habits, but there is something for me in the sea, uh, getting in it, looking at it, thinking about it. Um, I've always liked that thing, of course. It delivered my dad to my mother yes. and therefore my dad. You know, he ran away to sea when he was 15. I can't even, I, again, that's just astonishing, isn't it? 15, and he ran away to sea, got a job on a German ship. Oh, how old um, was he when he docked that day on Custom Key? 18. Yeah. So, again, orphaned, um, unloved. <laughs> it's just sort of astonishing. So, but yeah, but the sea, and again, of course, the sea is also blue. So, that's another reason why I just like looking at it and just keep looking at it. And then I think maybe I should try to paint it. Maybe I should take this interest in art and this interest in the sea and swish them together. But I don't know. There's also something where I'm thinking, like, don't I try not to be too purposed about it. Just kind of. When you talk oh about spilling your cup in art classes, that's going into watercolours, literally. You're spilling yeah. everything. Yeah. <laughs> so it's all making sense that you're in the sea trying to paint something blue. And I suppose there's something about... Oh, I don't ever refer to my writing as art, actually, so it makes me feel like an idiot. But there's something about any kind of creative pursuit where, where you are, or I am anyway, maybe it is just me, and where you're always struggling with the gap. It's the gap between your aspirations for what you want this thing to be and like the current mess that it is. And there's something about, I know that if I started trying to paint the sea, I would immediately probably come up against the fact that I don't even like know how or whatever. Whereas actually, yeah. so I kind of think maybe it is just nice to stay in this place of possibility where I just almost like look at it and just sort of allow it to be. Um, That's a nice expression. Stay in this place of possibility. 
be at yeah. peace with the that's... fact you don't have to solve it or do it. You've just got to be an mm. aesthete and, and if that's the right expression and enjoy it. Um, so we could be on to squirrels now, unless there's a third influencing thing. I'm just checking whether I'm asking my own structure. My third influencing thing, I've written down ordinary people, and of course nobody is ordinary, but everybody is ordinary, just ordinary people, and they're kind of just their lives and their hardships. I am so, I'm so incredibly inspired, just how you get to know someone, and one of my favourite sayings is, they used to say this in the pub in Yorkshire where I worked, they'd say about someone, like, oh, you can tell he's had a big paper round. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and one of my favourite things is to say, especially if I catch myself being a bit judgmental, but you just don't ever know the size of someone else's paper round. That's the thing. Yes. Yeah. And now uh, we're going on to two random squirrels, please. Squirrels, so borrow from the film up, uh, what are the squirrels of distraction that never fail to stop you in your tracks, irrespective of anything else that might be going on for you? Kathy Rinsenbrink in your hectic life. Well, it is sort of, it's words in that it's printed words. So again, if I am sitting next to someone on a train and if they have some sort of document in front of them, it's like almost literally impossible that I don't, and, it, and these days, of course, my eyesight is not so good, but I've always been able to read. I don't know how I do it, but it's like, I just look at a page and it flies into my head. I haven't taught myself to do it, but I've always been able to do that. Another squirrel, I think you're allowed um i've thought about uh and again it's because i've already had to see lighthouses so i'm obsessed Ooh. with lighthouses i do you know what i like them too there's just something fascinating about them yes and now a quirky or unusual fact about you we couldn't possibly know until you tell us so when i was 17 i won and i was the youngest ever winner i won the snaith and district ladies darts championship 180. That's a fantastic fact. Now we're going to talk about alchemy and gold. We stay in the clearing, which is still your beautiful sea cove. Uh, and now we're moving away from the tree and we're talking about alchemy and gold now. When you're at purpose and in flow, what are you absolutely happiest doing in what you're here to reveal to the world? What I really like doing is, um, and I never quite know what the word is, I like being with a group of people who want to write and I like helping them do that. And it can be quite a big group of people. Like I've done a couple of really nice things recently where I had like 40 or 50 people. Um, and I'm giving, I'm talking to them about writing, giving them sort of exercises to do. And that feels like that is my absolute purpose and calling in life to do that. And I'd love to be able to have people in my clearing like that. I'd invite them all in with their notebooks. And as you say of yourself, I am a writer who loves to encourage. And that sounds that exactly that zone where you are plying your alchemy and your gold. Yeah, I really love it. And again, in my own writing, I'm quite, uh, you know, like every day is writer's blocks day. I'm quite, uh, oh, you know, often bowed down by my own structural woes. But when I'm with other people, it, it all feels like it makes sense because I'm very good at helping other people get over get over those things themselves so um yeah I can't quite do it for myself somehow but I'm really good at doing it for other people and it just feels so it's just delightful I just love it I just utterly utterly love it Lovely. um it's been a little bit like I did this wonderful thing in Cyprus recently and we were um this is a place called the Topos Retreat and it's in this village in the mountains and the 
we were right next door to this place, which apparently was the um, site of the Temple of Apollo. Um, and it did feel really kind of, there was something, I don't know, it just felt like the gods were in the air. Cause it's, there's something about it doesn't really almost, doesn't massively feel like it is me. Like when, it's re- when I'm doing it really well, it does feel a little bit like I'm almost like channeling something else. I've become much less, not really about me even, it's just about the people, I guess. Um, and that feels very nice for it not to be about me. Um, so because very occasionally when my writing is going very well, actually it's not very occasionally, it's more that as a percentage of the overall thing of writing, it's writing something, it's not all the time. But like when writing is going very well, again, it, it is, I can tell it's going very well because I'm not in it so much. It's not really a conscious thing so much. It kind of, something else takes over. It's but it happens out. more quickly when I'm teaching sometimes referred to as the muse isn't it that sweet spot when you have the muse and you're just free-flowing yeah I think that's probably what it is and something happens um and I don't know I don't know and I kind of don't care whether I remember saying this in Cyprus like I don't it doesn't matter what you think it is it's like I don't care whether it's dopamine you know I don't know whether it's like Happy. I don't <laughs> you know, like there's I, I like reading all those books about habits you know, so I don't care whether, you know, like a neuroscientist could probably explain what's happening or um, Apollo could explain what's happening. Personally, I don't care which one it is. I just like yeah. the way it feels. Yeah. And I don't, I don't, I don't care whether it's the, again, I don't, I don't mind what the explanation is for it. More and more, I'm trying to just find ways to sort of be in that state. Fear is a great blocker for it, of course. If you're, um frightened I don't think it happens so it's it's kind of calming yourself so that you can then again uh I was writing something about it and I called it um I called the piece I was writing say yes to the muse because that's what it feels like I'm very happy I used the word muse just a few moments ago that's a lovely segue um so now I'm going to award you with a cake if I may this is the final multi-layered cake it's stuff like first of all do you like Kate uh, cake uh, Kathy well, this is probably very boring. At the moment, I've worked out that it really does seem to help me to eat almost nothing. Not, not to eat nothing. I'm not really eating sugar or processed food at the moment. And it seems to, I've got all these boring health problems. It seems to help with my joint pain. <laughs> but I will enjoy the metaphorical cake. And actually, I've always had a thing, because uh, I lived in France for a bit. I really liked the window of a French patisserie and I've always had a thing like I don't really need to eat the cake I like having I used to go out with friends and say you have the cake and I'll just have an aesthetic share of it I just oh, like looking, I yeah. like looking pretty things I don't really want I don't need to eat them really I just like the fact that it's pretty so I can have an aesthetic an aesthetic enjoyment of the cake so we can be outside your dream cake shop window in France did you say it was licking the window mm-hmm. instead which is lovely. <laughs> So now we're going to put a cherry on the cake in the form of what's a favourite inspirational quote that's always given you sucker, first of all? Yeah, so this is, um, I never say, I never know whether you say Ovid or Ovid, but this is our friend of that name. And it's, be patient and tough. Someday this pain will be useful to you. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given, Cathy? I've been given a few. but uh, the one that I had a little while ago was I interviewed Joanna Trollope, who's a very impressive woman. Um, and 
she said, I can't remember if I'm allowed to swear, am I? Oh, go for it. I can always edit it out. If it's a quote, it's fine. Yeah, she said, and she's very posh. I, was, I've just, I really like posh people swearing. I just think there's something very appealing about it. <laughs> she, said, uh, she said, and of course, she said, and she was very helpful. She was very sweet. I was telling her about my writing woes, and she was very, very brilliant. And then she said to me, she said, and of course, she said, the other thing is, the older I get, the less I give a fuck. And it was just so utterly wonderful. And I came home and wrote that on a post-it note above the, my desk. And I think there is something exciting about ageing, actually, in that sense of, again, trying to, oh, I don't know, I think probably my whole life has been about worrying about what other people are thinking and trying to get trying to give that the shift for long enough to like get out under it, to be able to just make something or do anything without being paralysed with the fear of what people are thinking about me. Which could be a great segue into uh, what notes, help or advice might you proffer to a younger version of Kathy Rensenbrink? Uh, I would say to her, I would say, be yourself. And I would say, yes, I know it's hard, <laughs> but it's like, it's all you've got, you know? And again, I think that's a lifelong some people just seem to be able to be themselves, don't they? And I don't ever. I don't. I don't run with a lot of conviction. I don't run with a lot of certainty. Um, quite often, I don't think. I, well, of most things, I think like oh, I don't know what I think. Outside of the, um, I don't like cruelty um, or rudeness. But outside of that, I just don't. I never feel I've got much conviction about things. And some people do. Um, but yeah, so it's this thing of I would always say just be yourself but no but that's not like a one-stop binary thing it's about you know a lifelong thing but know that it is okay to dedicate time and energy to this pursuit of trying to be yourself and if I could be greedy and have another one I would also say to my younger self and really enjoy not being in physical pain because you have no idea how nice your life is just that you don't hurt a bit all the time um and of course, nobody, what I think that that's the thing, isn't it? Until you've experienced living with pain, you kind of can't know how great it is not to. But I would like to tip my younger self the wink about that one. Lovely. And sorry, the, the fact that you're in pain isn't lovely. That was just a really lovely answer, I thought. <laughs> uh, have you heard that lovely, slightly cheesy quote about authenticity, which is be yourself because everyone else is taken? Yes, well, that is very true, isn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, if I may now, I'm going to ramp up to a bit of Shakespeare, but just before we get there, this is the past the golden baton moment, please. So who in your network, having experienced this from within in the same way that Kate Dimbleby passed this on to you, in order to keep the golden thread of the storytelling going, who, Kathy Redsonbrick, would you like to pass the golden baton on to, please? I would like to nominate uh, Kit Duval, who I think is a brilliant writer and an all-round magnificent person. And actually, I was interviewing her at Bath Festival, I think the day before or the day after I was doing the event with Kate. And um, yeah, she's just such an amazing person and she's written a few brilliant books, but the one I was interviewing her about is the memoir, which is called Without Warning and Only Sometimes, Scenes from an Unpredictable Childhood. And I would just like to, I basically would like to listen to her fairly nonstop, so. Kit Duval, did you say? Yes, Kit Duval. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to furnish me with a warm introduction and then your mission is complete. Marvellous. And now, inspired by Shakespeare and all the world's astige and all the beerly players, borrowing from the seven ages of man's speech. And by the way, this is a very authentic Shakespeare prop I'm holding up in front of you. This is the actual, actual complete works of Shakespeare that I bought myself to go to drama school. 
Shakespeare didn't sign it, but I did. Chris Grimes, 16986, before I went to the Bristol Old Vic Theatre School. And in turning this into a theatre show, I'm delighted in whipping this out as well. Uh, yes, I'll, I'll plug the theatre show at the very end uh, you know, when we're off here. But um, how, when all is said and done, uh, talking about legacy, Cathy, how would you most like to be remembered? I don't know, like she tried, maybe she had a go, kept going. Um, I wouldn't mind being remembered as a as a laugh, you know, that, I think that's one of the things that sometimes, uh, you know, like because of what happened to me, I'm so often talking about or thinking about really deep subjects. But um, but yeah, sometimes it's nice. To <laughs> I also do like to. Uh, I do like to laugh, so that would be nice. I like that. If I think about how people that actually know me would remember me, I would quite like it if there was a little bit of that in it as well, you know. Not just like she was a really helpful person when everything went tits up, but more kind of like, oh, yeah, she was quite a laugh. <laughs> Lovely. Um, as uh, So where can we find out where, uh, more about you on the old interweb? So where exactly can we go and find out about you? So my website is called kathyreadsbooks.com. And I'm intermittently on social media, not very often because I find it quite tricky, but I'm Kat Rensenbrink in those places. Lovely. As this has been your moment in the good listening to show stories of distinction and genius, is there anything else you'd like to say, Cathy? I would like to say that if anyone has listened to this and thought, oh, maybe I should try writing a book, please do, do it, go for it. Um, that would make me feel very happy it does make me feel incredibly happy I get quite a lot of, I get a lot of correspondence about my books and I like all of it um and I, there is a special thing when people say like oh since I heard you on this thing and now I'm writing this book or I heard you on this thing and now I'm writing first thing every day I really like that so that would be nice so ladies and gentlemen min, 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 you've been listening to Chris Grimes me uh, but most importantly this has been Kathy Rensenbrink uh, anything else you'd like to say just that it has been a pleasure and thank you very much for bringing me into the clearing. You're most welcome. And I'll just finish here and uh, good night. You've been listening to the Good Listening To show here on UK Health Radio with me, Chris Grimes. Oh, it's my son. If you've enjoyed the show, then please do tune in next week to listen to more stories from the clearing. If you'd like to connect with me on LinkedIn, then please do so. There's also a dedicated Facebook group for the show too. You can contact me about the programme or if you'd be interested in experiencing some personal impact coaching with me, care of my Level Up Your Impact programme. That's chris at secondcurve.uk. On Twitter and Instagram, it's at that Chris Grimes. So until next time, from me, Chris Grimes, from UK Health Radio and from Stan, to your good health and goodbye. So, Kathy, you've just been given a good listening to, and I've curated through you through this particular journey. If I could get your immediate feedback, and what was that like for you being curated through the Good Listening To show? Yeah, it was very enjoyable. I liked it a lot. Um, and I felt that there was, well, glad I had a bit of, you know, notice about things, uh, like the format. It's all very interesting to do. Um, yeah, so it was very nice.